Adrian Hyland is an award-winning Australian author of twisty crime stories that are perfect for the fans of Jane Harper, The Dry and Chris Hammer, Scrublands. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today we've got an author who was a delightful discovery for me. Adrian Hyland's latest book, Canticle Creek, combines complex and engaging characters, heart-racing plot lines, and whip-smart writing that captures the spirit and natural landscape of the Australian heartland. Our free book offer is a great selection of historical romances, a big contrast to Adrian's work. You'll find the links for that in the show notes for this episode on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or you can take the easy route, join in our newsletter and have the links all there sent to you every week so that you can get in and enter for these books straight away. You'll also find out what's coming up next. Don't forget to check out Binge Reading on Patreon for exclusive bonus content for less than a cup of coffee a month. But now, here's Adrian. Hello there, Adrian, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Morning, Jenny. Thanks, and thanks for asking me. Look, we're going to be focusing first on Canticle Creek, which is your most recent page-turning mystery. I loved it, I must say. It was quite a discovery for me. It's a page-turner, as I emphasise. It really is a strongly uh, motivated narrative mystery. But it's got the sense also of awareness of landscape and the creative process, which is sometimes more credited to literary fiction. It does a good job of being a great page-turner with a literary edge. And I wondered... Is that a tension that you consciously feel as you're writing or is it just more something that comes to you naturally? Hmm. I'd say it's one of the demands of the craft. I mean, for me, it looked like most about language is that, that I appreciate is, that, is, that, is the beauty, is its beauty. And if something isn't well written, it's roll off the, off the image is sort of cliched or flat, well, the, the book loses me. So, yes, I try and balance both of those things, I think. Don't yeah. know whether I succeed in either, but I'm sort of, as I was saying, I'm somewhere between the, um, the sort of popular and the literary, I think, and maybe, yeah, fall between those two stools, but I try to, to honour both of them, I think. I mean, I love both. You know, I, I like reading. I love reading poetry and all sorts of things, but I also love reading you know, all sorts of crime novels, they're all important to me. Australia's been particularly strong in crime novelists over the last couple of decades too, and a number of your crime writers do edge into the literary, don't they? I'd say one of the best Australian writers of period of the last, say, 20 years in Australia has been the great Peter Temple, sadly no longer with us, but... um, I remember him saying once when someone asked him a question, he says, I just write novels. If you want to assign them to a particular genre, that's your choice. And and he was a magnificent writer. Yes, yes. Now, your your heroine in Canticle Creek is Jessie Redpath. She's a young policewoman in central Australia, 
but she gets drawn into a, an investigation in Victoria, which is for those who are outside of Australia, further south and, and really a different sort of cultural community. She's yeah. trying to help discover something about a young uh, Aboriginal man who she's tried to shepherd through the justice system in her own neighbourhood, mm. and he gets into trouble when he absconds down into Victoria. And there mm. is very much in that story an underlying sense of the clash of cultures between two Australian districts, isn't there? Talk a bit about that for people who may not are not, are not so quite familiar with Australian society. Yeah. Look, I should emphasise the start that, that I spent 10 years living in, in basically in very remote Indigenous communities, uh, working in, mainly in the, in the Tanami, actually, with Walbury people out there in Central Australia. And they had a sensitivity and an awareness of country which, which has never left me, really, even when I was writing, I think, yeah, that, you, you've read that book that I wrote about Black Saturday, King Lake 350. Yes. You know, even when I was writing a book like that, that sort of Indigenous awareness of language and country and the connection between the two was never far from my mind. It just sort of, and, and it's, it's, it's sort of loomed large. And I don't know how to describe that. Except, you know, it's, a, it's a clash of two cultures in many ways, a tragic clash. And, you know, it's just, I'm trying to think how, trying to describe how how to summarise that for listeners, particularly given that some you know, your readers, your listeners may not be familiar with the Australian situation. I was thinking maybe of this time, and I'd, I was not long in the territory. And I was travelling through the Tanama with a couple of old fellows, going to really remote places where they hadn't been for many years, and they sort of show them around the country. And then that night we camped and we sat sort of talking and drinking tea for. A, for a, for a long period, and maybe drinking too much tea in my case, because it's about in the middle of the night. Sometime I I woke up to in need of a leak. And I took my torch and wandered down to the nearby creek, and I was sort of still sound half asleep. And suddenly, this massive, great king brown snake sort of reared up out of nowhere and leapt out at me and struck it, struck it almost, almost hit my torch. And I was I got such a hell of a fright, and I went. Sort of dropped my torch and went running back to the um, back to the campsite. And I, one of the old guys was sitting there looking at me, and he goes, "Are you right there, Triple?" And then they called me, and there's a massive great snake down there. And he sort of thought, looked down there and thought for a few seconds, and said, mm, it "Takes a bit of time for the country to remember you." And I thought, what an extraordinary, that, and as I was drifting off to sleep, that's, that phrase sort of lingered in my memory. That what an extraordinary way of looking at country. And that sensitivity is with me still, I think, and it sort of manifests itself in everything I write. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. And so you you didn't have that sense beforehand? Not really, no. I mean, I, I basically grew up sort of in the suburbs of Melbourne. You know? <laughs> I hadn't had yeah. much awareness of that at all, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also an underlying sub-theme about a Japanese artist that had yeah. been in Australia, and there's quite a bit to do with his heritage. Now, I must admit I didn't look him up online, but it was so convincing that I, I almost came to believe that was a real artist, but I suspect it was entirely fictional, was it? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I, I just, you just reminded me of something you said a minute ago, and the, the painter, poet, he, he writes poetry, and I've actually put one of his little poems at the start of the start of the book, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, as a crime writer, you explore some pretty dark places. 
of our society. And actually, I was thinking before of this quote I knew from this poet called Walter Savage Lander, who goes, I strove with, it's sort of a a philosopher looking back at his life, and he goes, I strove with none, for none were worth my strife. Nature I loved, and next to nature, art. I warmed both hands at the fire of life. It sinks, and I am ready to depart. That's all. So that sort of summarises how I think about a lot of things, that there's some terrible things happening in the world, and our only real salvation is in creativity, I think, and and nature. Nature and art, for me, are the two main talismans that I hold to myself. Yeah, and that really comes through in your books, it does. Look, you've chosen female protagonists for a number of these novels. As we've mentioned, Emily Tempest in the first two mysteries and now Jesse Redpath. And it's interesting to me me, that a man in his midlife is using the voice of young women. Midlife crisis. (laughs) What, what, What made you decide on female protagonists? Yeah, I mean, there was no deliberate choice, but I think one of the things is is that a writer, it really helps having a a protagonist who is a bit of an outsider. And for both these people, we've got Emily was a a young Indigenous woman looking at this overwhelmingly white, brutal world, and Jessie is also an outsider. She's from the Northern Territory. She's a a young woman. I think to me it just all adds adds to the tension, and it means the person can bring a fresh set of eyes Jessie has been living and working with the Indigenous people for for quite a few or for five or so years in the Territory and has learnt skills and things from them, which I suppose she uses to upset various apple carts and things down in, down in Victoria. Yeah, and also I guess outsiders like that, if they do manage to rise above the general culture that's almost trying to suppress them or repress them. Yeah. They have a particular spirit about them, don't they? And they've both got very lots of good comebacks when they're put down. They have very yeah. they're articulate young women, I guess. Is. Well, they're, they're fast and they're funny. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, know. I said somewhere about Jessie, she's got a, what did I say? She's got a, a roundhouse kick and a roundhouse mouth. Yeah, that's right. yeah, that's right. Now, the Emily Tempest books, actually, I do want to mention that the first of those, which I think is called Diamond Dove, isn't it? Diamond Dove, yes. that's right. Jim. And it won the Ned Kelly Award for Crime Writing Best First Novel, which is yeah, a yeah, real yeah. achievement for an Australian writer. Some people outside of Australia may not be quite so familiar with the Ned Kelly Awards, but they're a very prestigious prize to win for a first novel, aren't they? I suppose so, yeah, they are, definitely, Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she was a Emily, the first book, as we've mentioned, Diamond Dove, she was an amateur detective. But the second book, Gunshot Road, she's been employed as an Aboriginal community police officer. So she's now identified, I guess, with the arm of the law, isn't she? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Is there any chance we're going to have a third Emily book? Mm, Probably not, no. I think I'll stick with Jessie for now. I think the days of middle-aged white fellas writing about uh, with essential characters as an Indigenous woman are probably over now. No, Jessie's sort of absorbed. And also, I've I've sort of lost a bit of touch with that world. I can live there. I haven't even been up there for probably over 10 years now and I've lost some of the intimacy with which I, and a lot of the people I knew, the ones I love most have sort of passed away since then. So 
But there are still lots of stories to be told and lots of dramatic things happening in this part of the world. So I'm sort of focusing my energies on that at present. Yeah, yeah. So look out for another Jesse Redpath novel. That's fantastic. We'll get on to talk about that towards the end of our chat because I always do like to ask people what they're working on now. But turning to your nonfiction book, which also had a very large amount of critical acclaim and got onto lots of prestigious award shortlists, and that's King Lake 350, and it was... An Anatomy of a Disastrous Bushfire in 2009, the Black Saturday Bushfires. Can you tell mm, us about right. that? That was in the area where you personally live, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right, mm. yeah. Um, well, it was just a shocking fire. It killed, I think it was 100 and, oh, I should know these things, uh, uh, maybe 170 people. And it got just, you know, very close to where to where we live, although fortunately, you know, wind chains turned it away at the last moment. But you know, many of our friends died, and we went to nine funerals in the weeks after that. It was just a devastating event, and just you know, the apotheosis of climate. Well, I thought it was climate change, and we're getting. And but then again, of course, two years ago we had another one, black uh, the Black Summer, as we call it. So these bushfires that. Uh, wreaking havoc upon our country, they're they're getting worse. They're getting more frequent, and they're getting more devastating as climate change hits home. I went down, and I, I'd been in the CFA some time before. But I went down and rejoined the CFA uh, straight after Black Saturday. That's the uh, Volunteer Fire Association. So I do what I can to try and tackle them on the front line, but also that it's becoming more and more of a, a central theme in, in in my book, and I think in every in my books and in every artist's books. You know, it's just it's just rushing down the tunnel towards us like a like a freight train, unfortunately. Yes. So that book is written, there's quite a lot of it written from the point of view of a local police officer called Roger Wood, who was in charge yeah. of that particular section, the King Lake section. Yeah. But the thing I love about it too is that you do that micro level of what it was really like for the people there in a very personal and intimate way, but also you take the macro, you'd sort of elevate to you almost like a, a satellite in the sky looking down on Earth as a planet, and you talk about mm. the really huge issues there are about climate change in a way that makes it really understandable to people. Yeah, thank Yeah, I certainly try to do that. I mean, I, you know, I'm still at heart, I feel like I'm a novelist, but I wanted to bring some of the, and even a crime writer, I wanted to bring some of those novelistic and crime writing techniques to this story of, yeah. of Black Saturday. And Roger, Roger was a friend of mine. We're neighbours. He's on the property just not far down from mine and both our kids were all friends and they go to this, this little school. They were kids to get the school which which burnt down on Black Saturday. So we're all sort of flung together in a very tight-knit little group and I knew that Roger had performed some amazing deeds on that day, not from him but from various other people, you know, people I know whose lives he saved. And so I wanted to capture his story and in capturing one story, hope to honour all of the stories that were stories of heroism that were carried out that day. Mm. It was particularly poignant the number of people who 
refused to take direction from people like Roger and who actually lost their lives because of basically perhaps ignorance or inability to obey <laughs> others' yeah. orders. There seemed to be quite yeah. a few episodes of that kind of thing where people carried on down a road they'd been told was dangerous and they should just turn back. Yeah, well, I suppose on that day we're all so inexperienced and it was just like, a, again, I talked about the clash between Indigenous and non-Indigenous cultures. This was a clash as well. It's a, it's a oh, what's one phrase I'm just trying to think? We're trying to, we're trying to produce a, a settled culture in a nomadic climate was how one I heard one, someone describe it once. I mean, the bush we live in is just in Australia at least it's just built to built to burn and as cli- as the climate changes it's getting more and more so so I think people were just stunned and overwhelmed and didn't yeah. quite know what to do really it was chaos that day and you know people just not used to living in the bush are living there and living in places where they wouldn't once have lived and they've lost that indigenous awareness I mean aboriginal people live with fire very successfully but by doing lots of it but we don't have, you know, we've got all these big expensive houses and we don't want fire coming near them, so we try and suppress the fire, which you can only do for a certain amount of time till all suddenly it builds up under the under the litter and then explodes. Yeah, it was interesting, actually, there was that underlying thing that even when white culture tries to do burn-offs to protect themselves, they do them in the wrong sort of way, don't they? So they're not as effective. Often, yeah. Mm. Well, they used to do them. They're actually getting a lot more subtle now. I think, like, oh, is it a burn? With the fire association, we go to lots of these burn-offs and things. And I was at one last year, and I was amazed how much they've changed in the last 10 years. Now that people are much more aware of Indigenous burning, trying to do lots of small, gentle sort of fires to to protect yourself against the monster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just from the outside world, I I know those fires of a couple of years ago, Mm. the desperately sad thing for a lot of us is the way that it has affected the wildlife and in particular the koalas. Mm. It's just incredible. It's just shocking. Mm. Uh, I mean, three, three billion animals died in that in that fire and uh, uh, that doesn't that not oh, that doesn't just mean that uh, it includes all sorts of you know ca- koalas kangaroos wombats just devastation i hadn't i thought i thought a lot more animals would have techniques for surviving those things they can survive little ones but those big ones they just can't it's just like an absolute maelstrom descending upon them. Mm. Do you think there is, you mentioned about the fire techniques have changed. Have other things changed? Do you think there is more of an awareness now of the need to accommodate climate change? Not with, no, I don't think that, I wish that, I wish that was the case. People are generally accepting it, but I think in Australia at least where we're so dependent upon fossil fuels the people in power are having to be having to be dragged, kicking and screaming mm. towards mm. it. Mm. I noticed the election just called now our Prime Minister. The first thing he goes is it's all about the economy. Well you're not gonna have much of an economy if your if your environment's destroyed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We'll be back with Adrian Highland in a moment. A quick break to let you know about 
binge reading on Patreon, an easy way you can support the show expenses and enjoy exclusive bonus content as you do. It costs time and money each week to put the show together and it would be wonderful to have help in sharing the load. Behind the scenes as part of the exclusive content, it gives you a preview of the books that are coming up in September so that you've got a chance to read them before you hear the show. If you're enjoying hearing Adrian on the show, then I'm sure you'll appreciate his answers to the five quickfire questions, exclusive bonus content. And what about the encore new book episodes. You'll get those two weeks before they go on general release. Think about it. For a cup of coffee a month, you can get great content and the satisfaction of knowing you're supporting us to help us keep going. Check it out today at patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the joys of binge reading. Here we are back with Adrian Highland. Turning perhaps from talk, not so much talking about the specific books, but to your wider career, I see that mm. you did start out experimenting in lots of different areas before you settled on the crime genre as possibly where you'll spend most of your energy. Tell us a bit about that. You did write poetry for its status. What made you decide on the crime genre in the end? Look, I'd, I've written other things, and I certainly I've got. I tried a lot of poetry and different things. I published things in various uh, magazines and things like that. But it's really writing that I love. I love words on the page. And, you know, I've always read crime. I've always loved good quality crime. I remember when I was, like, I grew up in a very working class sort of area where there were very few books and things around. I remember in, in the outer western suburbs of Melbourne. But I remember I was when I was in year seven, we um, at our at our little high school I was at, Catholic school. We had a book box. A new sort of single little room library was opening up, and the teacher who was in charge of it all got me and another student to help him do it for a day. And when we'd finished, he said, "We can." Like, I think he just gave us a book. So we can just grab it. You guys can have a book, book each. And one I happened to be given was one I've still got now, which was the complete Sherlock Holmes stories and novels too. And, and that was the first sort of adult book I read, I think. And then, you know, what a place to start. I mean, you know, what a writer. He's just got that that superb sort of old English style and has you know, got humour in there and vivid characters. And I, I, and I love that sort of writing. And I also, you know, people like I think Raymond Chandler, for example, he's just got that incredible yeah. turn of phrase. You know, she gave him a look that stuck six inches out of his back or, you know, so I just love those phrases, the humour. I'm trying to think of. I'm an occasional drinker, the sort of guy who goes out for a beer and wakes up in Singapore with a full beard. <laughs> and I try and put a lot of that humour into my work as well. Yeah, in those yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a huge amount of humour in King Lake 350, I must admit. No, we're hard ones. There was actually one joke, but no one's ever common, no one's ever noticed except me, that I said there were three churches in King Lake and I said something like, the, the uniting in the Anglican ch- churches went to meet their maker, but the Buddhist temple didn't. That was as close <laughs> as I got to a joke in that book. <laughs> Look, talking a little bit about your earlier life, I mean, I'm not quite sure. Have you been writing all your life or was there a, a kind of epiphany no, moment where you thought, I've just got to get down and do something more coherent with my writing? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, I was just always, I was more interested in words on the page than anything else. Like I said, I wrote a lot of, I'd write, I was always keeping journals, which is you know, something I recommend to any any young writer. Um, but I was in my mid-40s and I'd, and I'd published a few poems and I, I was writing a lot of songs and playing playing music and stuff like that. But I, I kind of decided when I was in my 40s that, that one I wasn't getting in wasn't sort of getting in there much from a career perspective, so I thought I'd just and, and I'd always loved crime, but I'd never actually tried to write it. So I made myself the goal of you know, writing that writing that first novel, and so uh, it, before I turned fifty, which I did. But so what I did was I sat down. I got dozens and dozens of notebooks. I sat down and, from, particularly when I was in the territory, I sat down and read them all. And then over one summer, over about three months, I just wrote the first draft of a novel based on what sort of emerged from my memory. And that was accepted quite quickly with a really good publisher text in Melbourne and you know, been sort of going on from there. And what was that book? Do we know what that book is now? Oh, that was Diamond that Dove. That was Diamond Dove. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that, was what, yeah. that was my first novel, yes. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I was a bit confused because on Goodreads there's I think Diamond Dove is appearing on Goodreads under another name, is it? Moonlight something or Moon something? Oh, that's right. Yeah, the, in America, it was published in quite a few countries, okay. but it had different names. It was, that wasn't called Moonlight Downs. Yeah, and when I looked at Goodreads, I thought, oh, is this another book entirely? But then I guessed that it was probably Diamond Dove, yeah. It is a bit yeah. confusing. Watch, watch out for the... Jenny, watch over the German version. It's called Outback Bastard, <laughs> which confuses even more people. Um, what were you actually doing in the Outback, by the way? I was just working. Like I, I did arts, an arts degree at Melbourne, Melbourne University, studying languages and literature and so on, and, and I did the sort of things you do when you got an arts. I went up to the Territory and did every sort of crap work I could get my hands on. I worked in mines for a while, but my real interest was to learn more and spend time with Indigenous people. And after I'd been there for a year or so, I got a job, you know, running what you might call community development programs for people. There was a big move in the 50s for people to come in from the desert country. And then in the 80s and 90s, when I was there, there was a strong move to help them move back onto their traditional country yeah and that's that's the sort of work that I was doing it was incredible work when I look back at it to see these wonderful old you know very traditional people who you know probably been 30 years old before they ever saw a white a white person and um you know had a, had a way of looking at the world which you know maybe that's what I was trying to describe before when I mentioned the, the story about the snake yeah yeah and what were you, do you mind me asking? What were you doing in China? Because you did you do Mandarin as part of your degree? Yeah, I did. I did Mandarin, and then I just went and spent a year there when I let, first left uni. And you know, my Chinese got a lot better, but then I didn't go back there for many. But I, again, I was sort of driven by a love of all these exotic sort of places that I lived. I suppose I was always being driven by a, a, uh, just a desire to find truth and beauty and sort of inspiration from my poetry and writing and things like that. So I spent I spent a year just studying there at a university in Beijing, and then I I didn't go there at all for the next oh, it must have been the next fifteen years or so. But then I I got a job 
teaching English as a second language when I left the territory. I did that and I was working at a university in Melbourne at La Trobe, where I'm still a staff member now, and they had this program where teachers would get sent over there to run preparatory sort of programs for students coming here. So I did quite a few of those as well. So overall, I love China. It's my favourite spot in the world, I suppose, aside from Australia. And I try and bring some of their sensitivity to some of the things that I write. Great. Look, turning to Adrian as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and it's partly predicated on the idea that now people are turning to do a bit of binge reading in the way that they do binge watching. The kind of reading habits are changing because you can buy the next book in the series online at midnight if you want to get... Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> so, interesting. I, don't, I wish I could work that. <laughs> I'm sure your tastes are, are, are very eclectic, but give us an idea Absolutely. of what you're reading at the moment and things you'd like to recommend to your own readers, the sort of thing that you write. Oh, right. Yeah, well... Look, the greatest writer I've come across, I, I love Mick Heron. I, oh, I've yes. come across yep. them. We've, we've had you know, terrible lockdowns in, well, not terrible, you know, it's essential public health. Yeah. We've been locked down in Melbourne, I think more than any other country, in any other city in the world. So I've been, like everyone else, I've been doing a lot of reading. My, my two great joys that I came across were Mick Heron, um, who I presume is going to become famous now that there's a TV series made of his books. Do, are they, do you know those, Jenny? Are they? I don't know the TV series. I do know his name, but I don't know the TV series. Oh, yeah, I think he's brilliant. And Ali Smith, the, the uh, Scottish novelist, is another person I really love. Yes. Not, they're not crime, but they're just, I suppose they're more literary, but they're really fast, funny, witty sort of books. I love David Mitchell. Yes. The novelist, yes. not the poet, not the uh, comedian. Yes. <laughs> and well, the comedian's fine too. What else would I recommend? I've just been rereading one of my one of my, my favourite Australian writer is maybe the poet called the poet John Kinsella. Right. Maybe not as well known, but he's an extraordinary one of these writers who's got the gift of being able to manifest things rather than talk about them. I was just reading this poem which he describes a solar panel sit leaning against the front bumper bar of a car as the sun's going down and he describes it so brilliantly you can almost feel and see the light coruscating off yeah those are some good some good writers they sound great looking back down the tunnel of time and looking over your own creative career if you were doing it all over again is there anything you'd change Uh, yes i'd start i'd choose i'd start writing crime earlier I'd stop wasting my, not wasting my time. I'm sorry they're all building up some of the skills you need to write anything, but, you know, and reading very eclectically is is nothing. Now, that's wonderful to do that, but I sort of felt a bit like I was all over the place fit for a while there, so I wish I'd settled on a genre earlier. Yeah. That said, no, there's no no point in regrets. I'm just happy to be doing what I'm doing and, and loving what I'm doing, really. Yeah, yeah. So tell us, the next 12 months on your desk, what are you working on at the moment? Oh, I've, I've got a – the next Jesse Redpath novel is due to be finished by the end of this year. So I'm fr- – and I normally write – Normally, write them much slower than that, so I'm frantically working on that while trying to keep up the keep up the quality as well. That's my plan for now. Yeah. Beyond that, I don't really know. 
Now, I know you haven't got much of an online presence, and usually I ask people mm. about whether they like to interact with the readers and when their readers can find you online. Do you encourage people to, to approach you online or do you prefer other methods of communication? Yeah, I get, I get, I must admit, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a little bit tricky to track down. Not, that's not from any choice. I'm just sort of too busy, you know, writing to have to do, to do too much uh, Facebooking and Instagramming and those sort of things. But I know my kids kept telling me I should do it more. I think I'm a, I can be contacted via La Trobe website where there's a staff website. And also, going to my publishers is a good way. Yeah. And I do yeah. get the odd email or letter passed on from them. Yeah. And I'll certainly make sure that that link for your publishers is in the show notes for this episode. So oh, that will be make it easier for you to be found. Look, it's been great talking today, Adrian. Thank you so, so much. Uh, thank you so much for your interest, Jenny. And I look forward to meeting you one day. Yeah. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, Lisa Sherwood-Fabra gives a new angle on Sherlock Holmes. Before Sherlock Holmes became the world's greatest consulting detective, scandal rocked the Holmes family. Lisa Sherwood-Fabra's series features an adolescent Holmes saving the family from disaster in a fresh take on a mystery that brings to life details we've really only dreamed of. That's it for today. See you next time and happy reading.